Welcome to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies and New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. On Wednesday, September 20th, 2017, a Category 4 hurricane made landfall on the U.S. territory of Puerto Rico. Hurricane Maria completely destroyed the island's power grid, leveled homes and schools, and was and continues to be a source of great humanitarian concern, both for the 3.4 million people who live on Puerto Rico, as well as for the upwards of 300,000 Puerto Ricans who live in the state of Connecticut. On the first segment of today's show, I'll be talking with WNPR journalist and photographer Ryan Karen King about The Island Next Door, a reporting project undertaken by King and WNPR news director Jeff Cohen that documents the months-long fallout of Hurricane Maria, both on the island and in the Nutmeg State. In particular, we'll talk about the videos and photographs that Ryan made over the course of several reporting trips to Puerto Rico in late 2017. On the second segment of the show, I'll be joined by New Haven Independent staff writer Alan Appel for a review of Phantom Thread, a new movie from director Paul Thomas Anderson that offers a biting critique of the myth of the domineering male artistic genius and his docile female muse, all set in the world of high fashion in post-World War II London, starring Daniel Day-Lewis, Vicky Creeps, and Leslie Manville. But first, without further ado, I'm very happy to welcome to the show Ryan Karen King. Ryan is a reporter and photojournalist for the Hartford-based public radio station WNPR. He covers the environment, infrastructure, and immigration, and produces videos and stories for WNPR.org and other public radio stations across New England. Thanks for coming down from Hartford today, Ryan. It's a pleasure to have you here. Yeah, thank you for having me, Tom. It's great great to see the studio in person. Excellent. Really cool. I know. Great to have a fellow reporter and radio person. Yeah, well, usually I'm behind the camera, not behind a mic. Uh, so this is a little bit different for me. Well, really still pushing me outside of the, the still bubble. Still with yeah. camera and mic in front of you, but I guess you are now <laughs> the subject of interest. But <laughs> right? uh, I offered uh, my own kind of brief synopsis of what Island Next Door is. But as someone who has worked on it, tell me yeah, in your yeah, words, yeah. Uh, what, what's the mission of this project and how did you get involved with it? Uh, so, you know, as you probably know, um, and I saw you posted on Facebook, you know, a few statistics about uh, the Puerto Rican population here in Connecticut. Um, but there are you know, roughly 300,000 people in Connecticut who have uh, Puerto Rican roots, who claim Puerto Rican descent. Um, a lot of those people are traveling back and forth between the island, um, and a lot of those people uh, have family on the island. Um, so when uh, a disaster strikes, even though it's on an island that's you know, 1,600 miles away. Um, for us, it's in our backyard, essentially. These are, you know, the, the, a lot of the people, uh, you know, we ran into in Puerto Rico just coincidentally happened to be from Connecticut um, or have lived in Connecticut for a few years. Um, so we really wanted to treat the hurricane and the disaster um, as reporters as a local story. Um, this, for us, was about the people in our community um, as if, you know, the hurricane hit here almost. Mm. Um, so yeah, it was, it was important. That's how we sort of went into it. Um, and how did you uh, personally end up on this assignment? Had you covered either Connecticut's Puerto Rican population before, or uh, were you fluent in Spanish? And, and uh, neither of those things, there, unfortunately. Um, two things I well, two things I have to work on. Um, but uh, so I, I am the the station's like I guess visual person. Um, we're we're a public radio station, um, but like most news entities now, we've got a website. Um, and a, a couple of years I was brought on to, to sort of help with the um, the visual components of that. So I do some of my own radio reporting, um, but I would say my primary role is to take a lot of the stories report on the radio um, and produce videos that illustrate what we're talking about and what we're hearing about. 
So Hurricane Maria hits, and it is a national and international story of just humanitarian crisis, the devastation of this island already in you know, very severe trouble, both uh, economically and also in terms of the state of its infrastructure. You recognize that you know, Connecticut has such a significant Puerto Rican population. Tell me about uh, what, I don't know, what the conversation was like between you and Jeff when you're on, on the plane down to Puerto Rico. What, what is it that, how, how do you two kind of divvy up your responsibilities mm. for this project? Um, and also, wh- I mean, when, when was the, how many times have you been to Puerto Rico? Yeah, yeah. When, when were you going? So, well, so I, I had never been to Puerto Rico before the hurricane. So walking into sort of a, you know, a disaster zone, at least the first time we went, we went twice um, in the past couple of months. Um, but the first time we went was four four weeks after the storm. Um, and it's funny you mentioned what we were talking about on the plane down. We were, you know, just we we're, we're I think we had a night flight, and we were going to get get to work the next morning. We were going to just get to San Juan. We were going to stay in Old San Juan, and and sort of use it as our home base. Um, and we had stories set up across the island. Um, so we were just sort of you know a little bit nervous because you know didn't really know what we were walking into, and um, we we're on a direct flight from Hartford. Um, and um, there's uh, uh, on on the plane a few. I think actually the row in front of us, a woman starts coughing pretty violently. It was um, you know a, a concerning situation. Um, and there was a, a man there who was helping her and sort of coaching her through this 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 asthma attack of of sorts. And um, he had brought some inhalers down for his family. He was going to Puerto Rico. He had family in Puerto Rico. Um, gave her one of. Her, inhalers and we're like oh who's this guy sounds like you know this guy's you know he he had everyone you know stand up and clap for the first there was a, a few emergency responders who came and and helped out and he, he had the whole plane uh plane in applause and we're like we got to talk to this guy so his name is guillermo class and um turns out that he um was going down to bring his sons who live in puerto rico um in a town outside of san juan uh, back to hartford he lives in hartford head for a while um, and we got his story on the plane, and it turns out that he actually had sold his car um, to, in order to afford the plane tickets. Um, so that was a story that immediately we weren't expecting to be working on the plane, but we were because this was, this was such a big story, and so many people were impacted. And I'm sure everyone on that plane had been impacted by the hurricane in some way or another. So we almost found that there, you know, as soon as we get there, um, or not even, but, you know, as soon as we get on the plane our job begins. Mm. That's, you know, uh, that's what serendipity, that's, it's a good eye uh, that, that you and Jeff had. And, you know, for, I, I also am a reporter for the New Haven Independent and uh, I'd say a great, you know, vast majority of my assignments are, I know kind of what I'm heading into ahead of time. And then you figure out where this, the story is, uh, where the kind of most important information is in a pre-planned event or protest or, you know, interview. But it sounds like here, maybe with this project, you had uh fuzzier idea of exactly what you would be reporting on in Puerto yeah. Rico you were just kind of going down there to be receptive is that how most of the articles well actually so so it's interesting I think we had to be open to anything happening at any point um, and we were there to work um, you know we, we woke up you know early in the morning and worked till midnight every night and we wanted to get every single you know uh, you know make sure every single hour and minute on on the island was was spent, um, you know, making sure we we were collecting as much as we could and talking to as many people as we could. But before we got there, we wa- we wanted to make sure that all the the stories we're reporting had a Connecticut focus or a New England focus. Um, so we did a lot of you know we we connected to a lot of people in our community, made sure to con- collect as many stories and 
as many angles and sources as possible. Um, a lot of people in the Hartford area, the New Haven area, have connections there, as I mentioned. And we wanted to just make sure that we knew um, one, like uh, a few people that we should be talking to on the island while we were there, um, and, and two, um, making sure that like the the people that um, we we're, we're covering, we're going to have some sort of Connecticut angle because we didn't want to just show up and just tell stories generally. We're not experts on hurricanes. We're not experts on Puerto Rican politics or, you know, this, the state of Puerto Rico. Um, but we, what we do um, generally is just tell people stories. Let's, uh, let's dive into some of the videos that you did make while uh, down in Puerto Rico across these two trips. And I think a, one of the, a perfect example of one that sits exactly at that intersection of uh, Connecticut focus uh, and also a Puerto Rican uh, disaster and politics focus is uh, when you followed a group called the is the the Water Dogs, yeah, a group yeah. of Connecticut volunteers and veterans uh, in the southern uh, area of Salinas. Uh, so I wonder if you could uh, tell me about the story that you uh, helped capture in video and uh, what what that assignment was like, uh, you know, just being there with your camera. Yeah, so that was that was a really interesting assignment because um, we had profiled one of the the, the people on that team, um, and uh, just earlier in in the week before we went, we talked to her on the phone and about some of the efforts um, to collect supplies and distribute them on the island, um, how that was going, and and she was and she told us I think she, in a text message, oh, I'm actually going around with a bunch of uh, Puerto Rican veterans. Um, and they they all have Connecticut roots, so they're a bunch of Puerto Rican veterans who live in Connecticut. They got on a plane and went to Puerto Rico to um, uh, filter people's water for them. At that time, four weeks after the storm, and even today, there's a scarcity of clean water. You know, there there's a variety of reasons. You know, contamination because of the storm, um, the fact that there's no power and people you know can't get well water. Um, and 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 at that time, people weren't able to drive to the store because there were you know lack of gas, or some people just didn't have cars, and we were out in the mountains. So this is a pressing need, and this this small group of Connecticut veterans were going from town to town with um, this water filtration device that they would go up to a river um, or a pool or, or some sort of body of water and pump it out of the water into this big tank and then filter it. And then um, it was interesting because. Uh, there wasn't cell service where we were, so people couldn't just text their friends and neighbors that, okay, there's this water that's available now. It, it, you know, they were there for several hours and let word spread throughout the town so you could see people start to walk in and line up as they got word that there was this water that was available. And it started, and it was, it was, it was fun because <laughs> it started to rain while we were there, so, you know, we had to, to, you know, I had to put plastic bags over my equipment and, uh, we got really wet and muddy, um, <laughs> um, but it you know sort of added to the element of urgency that you know people were willing to stand out in the rain for an hour or two just to get clean water, um, you know, and that was four weeks after. Um, but and you know, in many cases, some people still are in that situation today. You know, I'm I'm glad that you brought up uh, the element of of the rain because it's one of the most uh, kind of visually striking aspects of any of the videos that you created. In my opinion, is that uh, you have people just drenched from the sweat of the hard work. I mean, these are uh, firefighters and you know military veterans, and these are like very big kind of muscular guys, and they are just soaked uh, through their shirts as they are providing 
uh, clean drinking water to, as you're saying, people who uh, have not had access to that for potentially weeks. Uh, and I wonder, um, you know, as someone who is capturing this story on video, as someone who is maybe kind of uh, putting on your videographer cap, um, what is it that you are looking for kind of visually in this story in particular to try to communicate the the urgency uh, of this this lack of, of water for the people who live here and also uh, the uh, the kind of the altruism and and uh, almost heroism of these people who are traveling uh, to Puerto Rico to help provide it um, that you use this technique of uh, having a kind of voiceover narration of the different interviewees while they kind of stand soaked looking at the camera in front of um, a, a picturesque, but also quite dev- devastated kind of mountain landscape. Yeah. And I wonder how, how, I mean, what images from this particular video stick out to you? And as you're putting together, how did you want to tell this visually? Well, I think uh, we have the advantage of not having to put together, you know, a one minute TV spot with a, a, a you know, a dramatic narration or a reporter's voice. Um, since we're, I'm producing primarily just for the web and social, um, I I have the advantage of just being very free with the format. Um, so so I think generally what we like to do is just avoid the whole um, reporter narration and just put it in people's voices. And in that situation, you know, I, I, I can describe the urgency of the situation, I guess, as a reporter, but it's going to come so much. It, it's You're going to be able to hear it more from people's voices who are living through that. So that just have um, the audio of those those people in that narration, I think, um, really help tell that story um, versus having me tell it. You know, my job, I guess, is to just show that and record those voices. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, I mean, that's that's one aspect I think that, um, I, mean, I guess that's not a visual aspect. Um, but no, I, th- I think yeah. that, you know, that's oddly enough, that is something that I'm not you know, realizing until right now, but that is such a huge difference even between the, you know, the video work and the audio reporting that you all have done, which is usually a combination of a WNPR reporter talking, you know, describing the scene and then, uh, you know, interpolate or adding in different, uh, you know, voices from interviewees, from talking heads. But the video, I think for all of the videos, the only audio that we hear are environmental sounds and the people on the ground in Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that does that, that does really situate the viewer kind of much more concretely in this area that you are looking to describe. But um, if uh, maybe as you're thinking about the visual elements of the movie, I'd love to move on to uh, another one, which is uh, a kind of even more focused kind of short documentary about a 90-year-old man uh, named Alejandro Laluz, mm-hmm. uh, who is not suffering from uh, a lack of water, but is in this home that is uh, lacking electricity and also just completely <laughs> barren of of everything. I mean, yeah. some of the shots that you had, again, the, I kind of went through each video and identified the images that jumped out the most to me. And for this man who has kind of returned to his home to be close to the place where he spent, you know, 60 years with his wife, uh, to have an image of a completely empty kitchen and the refrigerator door open and the jugs of kind of gallons of water kind of piled by the side of the oven is a pretty powerful, I don't know, testament to his resilience and also to just the you know how there is so little here for him or and also you know just the love of his home um in this particular story uh mr laluce um returned to the mainland to live with his family for um, a short period of time and then missed his house and his home so much that he insisted on coming back despite there being no electricity 
there and, and at, during certain times, no water. Um, and when we liz- visited him, he still didn't have electricity. And he explained to us um, that, you know, this is, this is the home that he made with his wife and she had since passed away. Um, but this is where all his memories were. Um, so I, I think like a, a story like that um, is, is, was challenging for us to tell visually because, you know, there, I guess you can look at, you know, how sparse the house is and the refrigerator door being open because he wanted to air it out um, because, the, you know, it wasn't running or things like that. But it was really, you know, we, we walked in and we didn't want to intrude too much. Um, so, you know, you had to be quick about ca- collecting the video visuals and the video. Um, but at the same time, the words he was saying were, you know, so powerful and so resonant that, you know, it's like, how do we, how do we show this in B-roll? It's hard. Um, and I think like, a, I think a lot of the videos I do actually don't, um, rest on the subject themselves that like the A-roll, I guess, of the, the, the interviewee. Um, but this one, I felt like we had to keep returning to him because mm-hmm. it was important to see his house because that's what was really important to him. Um, but just seeing him tell that story, I think was the, you know, to him, for him to relay, you know, why he returned, why it was so important for him to live here, despite not having, you know, despite not having things that are pretty essential to living. I mean, he walked to the mall to charge his cell phone. Mm-hmm. Um, he, you know, would go to the coffee shop to, to get different things. Um, but he would live in this place without, uh, for, for months, um, without electricity. I think uh, this is such a fascinating distinction between the importance of A-roll and B-roll in this vid- these videos uh, that you've put together. And uh, if correct me if I'm wrong on these definitions, but A-roll, I guess, focusing on the immediate subject of the interview and then B-roll kind of scene setting material, material that of, of the house, of the landscape, of uh, not necessarily the interview, but things that just kind of put you in the environment uh, where this the subject lives. Is that the distinction between A-roll and B-roll? I, th- I think so. Actually, I don't have like too much of a, a, a film education myself, um, but, you know, it's, it's stuff we figure out as oh, we yeah, go. But, but I mean, I, I feel like this, <laughs> yeah. uh, I, these two videos that we've spoken about thus far, the Water Dogs one and the uh, Alejandro Leleuze one, uh, are both about uh, kind of resource scarcity in the wake of this uh of this hurricane but also they're very different in that alejandro is is so focused so intimate on on one subject whereas the water dogs one is a a collection of people mm-hmm. kind of a yeah. group of people trying to help a much larger group of people who live yeah. in this area uh by by pumping fresh water for them uh, yeah, and i wonder yeah. if you found kind of one more challenging than the other one yeah. requiring a uh, greater sensitivity yeah. to any individual story because I imagine that you you know walking around this guy's house with your camera as he's remembering you know his his wife who he so so dearly misses and whose memory has so explicitly brought him back to this house yeah um if you've already touched on this a little bit but how do you uh, kind of walk the tightrope of that respect of privacy while still yeah. capturing the story oh it's, it's really tough um and I think but I think those stories are easier to tell um, for us, um, like knocking on doors um, and just meeting people and just asking them, you know, what is your experience? What was your reaction to this disaster? How has your life changed? And just telling those stories are a lot easier than trying to say, like, this is the state of Puerto Rico right now. Like, I don't, I don't, like, I can only tell people, like, I've only spent, you know, 20 days there total. So I don't, I don't know the full story of Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria, but what we do know is, you know, this one man's story. 
uh, or this story of this group of you know volunteers on that specific day um and collectively you know that sort of builds together an understanding of what what was going on of all the different stories we were telling um but yeah so it's i mean it's it's an an interesting challenge i guess to have to like focus solely on one person and um try to ask for uh, access to to really hard things um for for them to recount really emotional things um but for 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 me that's that's I i like doing that more than trying to have to you know summarize a whole disaster um like 60 minutes would. <laughs> well, uh, you're listening to Ryan Karen King not summarize a whole disaster, but offer some thoughts on uh, intimate and difficult and personal things uh, on WNHH's Deep Focus. Uh, I'm your host, Tom Breen, uh, and we're talking with uh, WNPR's Ryan Karen King about The Island Next Door, a uh, reporting series that he and WNPR news director Jeff Cohen and a number of WNPR reporters have undertaken to report on uh, kind of the aftermath of Hurricane Maria from a local perspective, from a Connecticut perspective. Um, there's at least uh, one more video I want to make sure to talk about before uh, transitioning into some of the photographs uh, you've worked on, and also just maybe some of the more domestic island next door, the kind of immediately, you know, in the state of Connecticut reporting that you've done. Um, but that video I want to talk about is the uh, the musical one, the After Maria Music Provides an Escape in Calle. And uh, I, I want to get at a little bit of uh, what your expectations were as a reporter and just as, you know, a an American traveling to such a, you know, devastated uh, part of this country, uh, what your expectations were and how they were either met or defied on these reporting trips. And maybe uh, either answer that and then go to the music video or um, or maybe talk about it in the context of finding this group of musicians in Kaye. Yeah, uh, well, Kaye was a very, you know, so cool to experience um, because we were... This so that so we went to Calle, um I think uh, eleven weeks after the hurricane, um, and so this was the second trip. This was the second trip, and um, and I think that reporting trip we like the Alejandro Laluz story. I think a lot of our stories, the theme was like a new normal, or mm-hmm. uh, or finding a new normal, or um, recovering um, in, in a psychological sense versus like fixing the roads or fixing the signs it was more like how do we recover how does an island recover how do people recover um, mentally um, psychologically from the trauma that comes with not having electricity not having water having to to live through the actual hurricane itself having to relocate and you know be displaced um so going to Calle, um which we actually didn't really get to see much of the city itself um it's, i think in a, a central part of the island, and um, we went there towards the night. And we drive in, and we we go to this this um, this public space. It's a public house of music, um, and it's just this space that's owned by the city that people can join, uh, uh, can come together to share music, to sing, to dance, to share poetry, um, uh, to to um, to just talk with their friends and drink. Um, <laughs> Talk about a space that every city in Connecticut needs Seriously, to have. Yeah, right. right? Well, and what was interesting, there were the people that uh, uh, two of the people that we talked to there. One of them who connected us to this place was uh, had spent time in New Britain and had family in New Britain, Connecticut. And the, the one of the p- people who got this place started uh, lived in Hartford for a while, and uh, I think was an X-ray technician at Hartford Hospital. <laughs> um, 
so again, like that connection there, that Connecticut connection was there. It's like, why didn't you start this in Hartford? Um, <laughs> but uh, so he, so I mean, it, the the spirit and the um, the the energy in that room was really really cool to see. Um, and so one thing they told us is that this, you know, this was a place that people could come to forget about the hurricane, um, that they could come to just celebrate and be with their friends and be with the people they love, um, and that that. Right after the hurricane, they they kept using this space to share music, um, and it, you know anyone can. It does. You don't have to be a professional musician, and it, but it's also not like an open mic or uh, it might it might be at at some points. But when we were there, it was uh, you know a, a, a large group of people just singing and dancing along to 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 music played by people who really could play music really well, um, and um, and right after the hurricane, they started using this space. Uh, they didn't have electricity. They didn't have a generator, so they came with lanterns and candles, um, and just to get a sense of normal life again. So the video that you made was that lit by lanterns and candles? That wasn't. Um, so at that point, they I think they had a generator, um, or maybe actually maybe the the electricity had been turned on in that part of the city. I know people living around it we talked to still didn't have electricity at the time, um, but no that that was that was fully powered, and they had. You know, they were singing into to a, a PA system too, uh, which is challenging sonically for for you know when we were trying to record it because it was so loud. Um, but I think out of all the out of all the stories we reported, I think something we struggle with is like you know we getting again to the sense of like we can't tell the whole story of the whole island. Um, you know, it's hard to walk away with photos or video and say oh, that captured the whole thing, that captured the the whole spirit of it because. Mm-hmm. One, oftentimes you're limited to the time you're there to, to, to get a scene and then go back and you're on deadline and you have to produce it. Um, but there, I really feel that the, the, the visuals that we were able to, to gather, um, it did capture like the, the spirit and the energy in that moment. And I, I think that, I mean, again, going through each video and trying to identify the images that resonated most with me, uh, there are two in particular that stick out to me. And I wonder if these also stuck with you. And one is a, a young woman uh, who is not the the focus of the band, but is def- is playing some percussive instrument. She's mm-hmm. kind of scraping this uh, this wooden kind of gourd shaped instrument, and then uh, she realizes that you have your camera trained on her, and she turns and makes eye contact and then smiles. Uh, and then the closing image of the little Puerto Rican flag uh, kind of stuck into the capo of the guitar. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. Um, but I mean, I imagine uh, this. Again, a totally different type of environment that you're documenting from this single man in a, in a vacant home in Alejandro La Luz, and then you know these volunteers out in the rainforest, basically pumping water. Uh, here you have this uh, dynamic and joyful and uh, celebratory environment in which you know the the interviewee, uh, one of the musicians, is talking about how. Uh, not everyone in Puerto Rico, but at least maybe the mindset that a lot of the musicians here have is that much like with the losing of, you know, the the passing away of a loved one, uh, you mourn, but then you also join together and celebrate as part of that mourning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, was was that a uh, one of the funner assignments that? Oh, that you absolutely! All- I think we left. You know, we left at 11 p.m. that night, but we were just like, you know, so stoked to go and work on that story. Um, it, was, it was really neat. 
So that so the second trip that you went on, if it was eleven weeks after the hurricane, then that was in December. Yeah, the beginning of December. So it's been a month, and I've seen you know if you go to and we will post links to the Island Next Door's website right. and all the reporting that you all have been doing up at WNPR. But you know if you go to WNPR's website uh, as early as this morning, you will see more reports from you about uh, you know as part of this series, but focused on uh, the fallout within Hartford. And I wonder if you could bring our listeners kind of up to speed with where your reporting is and where this project is uh, right now. Sure. Now that you all are back, um, kind of on the mainland. So, so like, um, I guess as my, um, my, my boss and my co-reporter on this job, uh, Jeff Cohen would say, we're cleaning out our notebooks still from the last trip and putting together some final pieces, um, for, uh, I guess our, our, our Puerto Rico, um, uh, trip, um, reporting. Um, one of them being about a town that, um, was built in our, a neighborhood that was built in a federal wetland and kept flooding and Hurricane Maria just made life a whole lot more complicated. Um, so that will be coming up, uh, coming out uh, in the next couple of days. And there's a, a, a short video documentary and a radio story that'll go with it. Um, but uh, as an organization, as a, a news company, WNPR um, has sort of committed a lot of its reporting and reporters. Um, so not just Jeff and myself, but a lot of our other reporters um, are trying to cover you know, the issue of Hurricane Maria in relation to Connecticut. Um, so being in the, the Puerto Rican community as best we can, keeping in touch with people who are going back and forth, um, trying to find, a, you know, a, a place to live after losing their home. Um, you know, there, there are a lot of people who came here to live with their families. Um, but uh, there's only so, you know, you can only live with your family member in their living room for so long. So a lot of people are trying to find homes. We're trying to capture that story. A lot of uh, students are starting school here in Connecticut um, after their families have moved them here um, from the island. Um, so schools are facing challenges. Um, and um, and then we have folks who don't necessarily want to relocate to Connecticut to live with their families, but you know need a place to stay while uh, FEMA either inspects their houses or they you know are trying to get you know, their situation together back on the island. Um, so a lot of people have been um, uh, using federal assistance to live in hotels and motels in Connecticut, um, and there's been some you know complications in that process where you know maybe um, in many situations um, FEMA has said that um, some of these families uh, should move back to the island. Their assistance is ending, um, and the families say, "Well, we don't have water or power yet. How can we do that?" Um, or you know, it's our house actually does have damage, so we're still reporting on all of that. It's a, it's going to be a story or a series of stories that keeps unfolding over you know over the next year or so. Um, so we there's a lot of work to be done, and, and we're trying to sort of put a lot of different hands on on that. I think complications in the process is a, a very generous way of saying it. You've been doing <laughs> some fantastic reporting on. Uh, in particular, a few dozen Puerto Rican evacuees at a Red Roof Inn in Hartford who are are just uh, kind of slung back and forth by promises uh, from the Federal Emergency Management Agency as to uh, how much support they're going to get in terms of, uh, you know, whether they would stay at this hotel while their houses are being repaired or whether they'll have to go live in a homeless shelter on the streets or, yeah. you know, God knows wherever else, uh, you know, a few dozen people can live uh, in the wake of a disaster like this. Um, I think is it the latest that those families have another three days to stay at, uh, at Red Roof Inn or? Well, so right now, so and it's sort of a confusing story. Um, 
because the there there's just just been so much back and forth about it. Um, but essentially, there's um, you know several dozen families living, as you said, in the Red Roof Inn in Hartford, um, and there are families all throughout the state living in, in different hotels temporarily, um, receiving FEMA assistance. Um, a couple of weeks ago, um, some of those families were coming up on their deadline, um, but you know had asked for an extension because they either didn't have a place to go to in Hartford with family. Maybe, maybe they don't have family here. Um, maybe there's nowhere else to move. Um, and then, um, you know, a lot of them said that their, their houses back home were, were you know, unlivable. Um, so I had asked for an extension, um, thought they were going to lose, uh, their housing. Um, but at the last minute, um, FEMA had told the state of Connecticut after the governor had intervened and asked for an extension and, um, as did uh, Senator Blumenthal, um, and FEMA had said, uh, you can have an extension until February 14th. Um, a few days later, um, hotel management had started to knock on people's doors saying, you have to check out, your, your FEMA assistance is ending, you have you know three hours to, to check out of the hotel. Starting a lot of confusion, apparently the state had been notified last minute and the hotel had been notified very last minute that this extension, in fact, didn't actually go through. There was someone... Uh, there had been an error um, on FEMA's side, and those people actually weren't eligible for an extension. So right now, um, the state of Connecticut is paying for those families who aren't eligible to live there until February 1st, so they have a little bit more time. But again, a lot of people don't have another place to go, and homeless shelters, not the most ideal situation, are still full. It's cold out. People, you know, there are a lot of there there isn't a lot of space there, and also isn't the most ideal situation. Um, you know, if if you have a house um, on in Puerto Rico that's just been damaged, that is sort of like the last case scenario. Um, so a lot of people, you know, are still there. You know, they're they don't know what they're going to do just yet. Yeah, it is a, a rapidly uh, changing story. So definitely uh, keep up with with Ryan Karen King and WNPR as they track uh, the latest with uh, these particular families, but also uh, the entire Island Next Door project. Um, Ryan, for listeners interested in watching some of the videos we spoke about today or following you, your reporting, your colleagues reporting, uh, can you share a few websites or sure, Facebook pages yeah. or where can people turn? I, I think the easiest place um, to, to find all of that would be um, at the Island Next Door. So it's the Island Next Door dot wnpr.org so that's just the website where you'll you'll find all of our reporting including anything that's recent in here in connecticut there are two maps where you can actually track the locations of all the stories that we report in connecticut and all the stories that we reported on the island in puerto rico um, and then we try to keep it up to date with all of our la- latest videos well we will definitely link to that on the deep focus radio uh, webpage. and ryan karen king of wnpr thanks so much for coming on the show it's been a pleasure to have you here and to talk about your reporting Thank you so much for having me, Tom. I appreciate it. Definitely. So coming up next, a review of Paul Thomas Anderson's Phantom Thread. But first, let's hear a little bit of Ellison Jackson's Man from Lowell. Welcome back to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies and New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. 
Uh, for the second segment of the show, I'm joined by the New Haven Independent's Alan Appel for a review of the new Paul Thomas Anderson movie, and supposedly the last movie uh, with actor Daniel Day-Lewis, Phantom Thread. Alan, thank you for coming on the show. It's great hi, to have you here. Hi, Tom. Always a pleasure. Okay, so I don't have a, a pre-written intro, so maybe I'll just uh, wing a little bit of the synopsis, and then we'll jump into our review. But right. Phantom Thread, I guess on the face of it, it follows a uh, this kind of artistic genius, difficult personality, couturier or dressmaker uh, in the high fashion world of post-World War II London. This uh, man named, uh, quite appropriately, Reynolds Woodcock. Um, <laughs> yeah. But really, the, right. I mean, the, uh, the, what he is trying to build for himself to accomplish as uh, an artist, and we'll see if that is an applicable uh, title for him, uh, is not so much wrapped up in his own name, but rather in the name of the House of Woodcock, this brand of of refinement, of class, of artistry, uh, of kind of immaculate, not just dress, but, you know, to achieve a certain prestige, uh, to be kind of rendered almost immortal. You know, people are willing to die over a, a, a Woodcock dress, or at least to be buried in a Woodcock dress, at least one character mentions, uh, over the course of the movie. So this is a, a revered man at the kind of the height of uh, his own high society. He goes on a country trip, falls in love with, or at least falls for, we'll talk about whether or not it's love, but falls for a kind of bumbling, uh, you know, a little tall, lanky, but of course beautiful uh, German waiter named Alma, uh, who becomes his muse, becomes the woman who inspires this kind of next round of creative activity. Uh, And the movie tracks not so much the rise and the fall of the House of Woodcock, but rather the very uh, intricate, difficult, and tense relationship between these two as they try to kind of wrestle control of the kind of power of this art uh, from their own very specific gendered vantage point. There's only so much a woman can do to usurp the man at the head of the House of Woodcock, and yet Alma, without giving away any spoilers, um, knows how to play the game and, and plays it very well. Um, there are <laughs> there are a few lines from this movie that I think communicate the character of Reynolds Woodcock so well. He speaks of an air of death permeating the household, about how he feels so comforted that, you know, the ghosts of those dead look over him. But one line in particular, which is one of the more amusing lines, but we use it as our jumping off point, sticks with me. In which case, in a fit of fury, uh, when someone tells him he should make dresses that are more chic, he says, chic. Whoever invented the word chic got to be spanked in public. <laughs> so, Alan, I wonder, uh, as we jump into a review, do you agree that the inventor of the word chic ought to be taken into a public square and spanked? Are you on the side of Reynolds Woodcock there? Or uh, do you think that maybe Reynolds Woodcock could you know, take a little um, uh, something that will make him a bit more humble? Well, the latter. I mean, I, I used to... Are we, is this microphone on? I guess so. I used to work for a guy who... Uh, who um, was very particular about shaking um, uh, pepper on his potato salad, and it had to be it had to be pepper of a certain uh, uh, refinement. Uh, and he was like appalled that other people at the table, including yours truly, would not shake the pepper. So I I know Reynolds Woodcock very well. Have some well. class, Alan. What? Have some class. Yeah. Shake the pepper. Yeah, and uh, and I uh, know, and I have. Uh, yeah, and I and I think, um, and I li- I've been living with a woman for thirty nine years who I think 
she's she is quite upset if I use a wrong size fork for the salad. So uh, I, I'm used to this kind of oppression and that I see in the movie. And uh, you know, you 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 know, with your boss or with your partner, you you do have to decide at a certain point um, uh, uh, how to deal with this if you want to maintain the relationship. And I would say. Uh, Tom, that what this really is about is how to make is it's really a story about um, uh, the context is the is the fashion industry of the 1950s or so. I guess it's a little murky to me. You know, I was trying to figure it out based on the model uh, model of the cars. I think it's post mid century uh, is kind of generally the, I, the time I, period. Right? It seems post war. Well, I think it's post world. It's post World War Two when people are just beginning to. Uh, uh, indulge themselves after the uh, the deprivations of uh, the blitz it set in london but uh, uh, i would say it's that's just the context for a movie that is essentially about how do you make a relationship or a marriage uh, uh, work uh with a utterly impossible human being uh uh who who justifies the, his being a difficult human being because he's some kind of friggin genius uh uh, and I think that's what makes the movie interesting. Uh, and and what, what's quite remarkable is Daniel Day-Lewis, who did announce this is his last movie, he he also said to a couple of um, uh, reporters uh, uh, that were quoted, I think, in some of the stuff I read, that the movie depressed the hell out of him, that he was the movie made him very sad. And, I, you know, I, I wouldn't want to do another movie if I had to be a character like this. I don't understand. It's only the power of... Daniel Day-Lewis as an actor that keeps you interested because ultimately, uh, you know, I, I would not have stayed in the marriage the way Alma does. I think he is an infuriatingly um, um, un, uh, um, a character who doesn't uh, uh, compensate the incredible um, uh, uh, requirement uh, that he demands of other people. I mean, there's a certain scene at one of the three or four different breakfasts. Breakfast is like a really critical time. He's got to get off on the right foot. And if you shake your, if you if you make too much noise uh, preparing your tea, he will ask you to leave the room. Uh, and and even if you do, and then once you do leave the room, I think as he says to Alma early on or to whoever her predecessor was. Uh, the 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 tea has left the room yes but the disturbance it has caused (laughs) remains with me and is interfering with my (laughs) working on the gusset of this armpit of this dress i want to jump in because please (laughs) i think that it's important to uh, distinguish between uh our kind of wonderment at why alma stays in this relationship and i think there are a lot of good reasons uh, that prove themselves out over the course of the movie but also the distinction between that with the characters and why the audience may stick with this movie. And I think that you're describing one critical reason for, at least for me, why this movie about such a difficult, childish, infantile uh, um, personality of Reynolds Woodcock, why it's worth sticking with them. And that is the humor that is just in just about every single scene of this movie. I mean, the way that this man uh, who has such a meticulous routine of uh, cleaning himself and pruning himself at the top of each day, who's revered as this uh, image of distinction and refinement, the minute that he's thrown out of his routine, and there's one particular scene where he's 
ambushed by a surprise dinner with his wife where everyone is asked to leave the house and he's only, you know, at the dinner table with his wife and he can barely put on the right clothes, right? <laughs> if you remember, Daniel Day-Lewis's character emerges at the top of the stairwell after his bath wearing his pajamas with a suit coat on and his hair's all ruffled. Oh. It's like this man who is, you know, the very image of refinement is exposed to be someone who is in fact incredibly hapless uh, without the the enforcement of this this routine. But and, who's laughing, Tom? Oh, I, the, I was... I, 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 I was, I, I, maybe I was this is too, too too dry for me, but certainly the characters in the movie don't find it amusing. They find it infuriating. Well, they re- and, but they recognize it as a series of power plays. And talk about a movie about a relationship between a, you know a very difficult person. How do you make it work? That's it's right. you recognize the way that they're trying to exert power over you, and then you flip that around. If you remember the way the moment when Reynolds. Fall, begins to fall for Alma or think that this could be a sustainable relationship is when she takes the aggressor's stance, right, in retrieving the stress from a drunken woman who is, you know, spoiling the dignity of the House of Woodcock by wearing it in some, you know, sultry fashion. Right, she, she, that is the she, moment when he recognizes that, okay, maybe she is not going to be like every other muse of mine uh, who has let me abuse them uh, to right, someone who is taking control. Right, but even, even in that scene where she earns his love by going in and stripping the dress off of the person who'd bought the dress because the, the drunken countess had the nerve to fall asleep on the bed wearing the it's dress. outrageous behavior it's outrageous but, so she goes in and rescues but we so, realize they're on the same wavelength at that point right? well what you realize is that she she understands uh she's uh, she's beginning to understand that if she if she wants this relationship and let's be clear there there are a couple of things that that also make it from a plot point of view intriguing there are kind of red herrings well, first of all it's a december may r- relationship he's got to be 20 years older than she is if not more mm-hmm. and his fastidiousness and all, all the and the whole business he's in and the fact that he has never been married uh suggests also that he might be a gay man except that we see i mean talk about immaculate structure on behalf of the director we see in one of the opening sequences um the end of the previous relationship right we see the the current mistress of the house of woodcock being dismissed because she offers him too sugary of a pastry and then all of a sudden alma comes into the picture and without well you know, he goes any- he goes for away for a weekend because he's so upset and he it's not it's not happenstance he's hunting for a substitute he is but we realize just in that juxtaposition of the end with the beginning end of an old relationship beginning with a new that this is the cycle that this man has been in for the 20 30 years of his adulthood right but i wasn't convinced that the, her, her almost predecessor Bar- barbara Rose, I think her name was. I wasn't convinced that she was like a true wife. No, not not at all. Yeah. And so it was still unclear to me mm-hmm. what his his reluctance. He's he at, at some point she says to him, and we should talk about the pace of this movie and mm-hmm. the and the sound and the music, which I think is really critical to the the film's success or lack thereof. But at a certain and they all speak so slowly. You know, almost speaks with a with a kind of. Like the like uh, like a uh, an English language learner, which in fact she is because she's German or Scandinavian or mm-hmm. something. But at some point she says to him, "Why are you not married? You're you are a handsome man. Why?" And he said, "Why would I, why would I be married?" His answer is like, uh, I jotted it down somewhere. Marriage would be would make him deceitful. Would but make it's, him dis- but marriage it's really, would make me deceitful. Well, it's really his relationship with his sister. We should talk about Leslie Manville's Cyril right. and also his deceased mother. Right. Uh, there is quite a bit of kind of Hitchcockian Freudian obsession with the the loss of uh, a uh, a mom or the right. very 
intimate relations. It's Hitchcockian, but all the violence is psychological. Yeah. Um, Let's talk about the sound just for a second, because, again, talk about the ways that the director, Paul Thomas Anderson, kind of amplifies just what um, really grates on this man. Whenever they're, you know, seemingly, uh, you know, serene breakfast is disrupted by the sound of someone scraping butter onto a toast or sipping from tea uh, a little too loudly. Uh, The way that those small noises are really, I I feel like Anderson was deliberately uh, amping them up for the audience to recognize just what is so great. I think that's right. Not that it justifies them, but we hear what he hears, right? This is a sensitive, you know, personality. Well, Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's, if, if there's a different technology at play here, but I, I, I have, I have never heard, uh, you know, uh, the voice of Daniel Day-Lewis or any of those uh, act, uh, actors in, in, in a movie with such uh, kind of crystalline clarity. Mm-hmm. It is amped up, and uh, but not only is it amped up, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis speaks w- with such a slow cadence, as, you know, uh, as if every word were uh, coming out of some deep um, well of... of of great taste and, and great and grace and something. And frankly, I said to myself, I made a little note. I said, this is really irritating because, the, because that kind of very slow pace, uh, is, it was accompanied by a uh, piano music. Uh, this is a very heavily scored movie, very heavily um, scored. But- and the music is very directional. Mm-hmm. It tells you how you are supposed to experience this. It's supposed to be, uh, you're supposed to say you're supposed to um, feel that this is highly stylized. I felt the whole movie was it was almost like I was in a piano bar. Mm. See, because it's piano music. See, I found it I, the the slowness of of his cadence and articulation and the kind of omnipresence of this music spoke to me of the incredible control that this man exerts over every aspect of his life. And because of the beauty of the end product, a lot of people defer uh, to that kind of absolute control. There are people willing to tolerate uh, this abysmal behavior because they recognize that what he's doing is something beautiful. And uh, I just, I want to end on this point because we're just about out of time. So in 30 seconds or so, you know, we have uh, spoken about a few movies about artists. Uh, in fact, one of the first movies that I reviewed uh, for The Independent back in 2015 was Mr. Turner, this movie about yes. J- uh, J.M.W. Turner, yes, the 19th century British painter. Mr. I wrote Another that, right. incredibly difficult personality who I think was trying to express something about the inner sensitivity of his life through these kind of beautiful impressionistic landscapes. Here, Woodcock is not trying to express any in- inner sensitivity in his dresses, I don't think. I think it's a way of creating kind of visually splendid, but also meticulously controlled, almost like violently controlled uh, examples of feminine beauty. So in 15 or 30 seconds, do you see this as a movie about an artist in the same way that Mr. Turner is about an artist? Or is, is this more about, you know, a megalomaniacal maniac? Uh, yeah, the, the, la- the latter. Well, the Turner comparison really does have merit. The difference is that we all know that being with this obnoxious person in some ways or being with him for two hours of the movie is worth it because the artwork is wonderful. I think one of the failings of this movie is because he's such a despicable character in terms of the way he relates to other people. You've got to make the case that these dresses are so gorgeous and so beautiful. And it's, it's, it's never clear that, that this, uh, this, the, the product is a work of genius. I, and maybe I don't watch Say Yes to the Dress mm. sufficiently on TV to appreciate it. But I don't, I don't buy that these things are so fantastic that this man is uh, 
this man is worth the trouble. I well, I would disagree. I, just think of that one scene where he's peeping through the little eye hole in the door, watching Alma bring to life this dress in a fashion show, where all of a sudden nothing matters in the world but the way that this woman is walking in a dress. I feel like the dresses uh, combined with the right model become something as spectacular as he could hope for. But that's all the time that we have. Alan, thank you for... Uh, <laughs> for chatting <laughs> about Phantom Thread and we'll uh, talk with you next week. Check out deepfocusradio.com for uh, a recording of today's episode. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Alan.